Good morning. It's Laura Huey and you're joining me for Sociology 9009, our graduate seminar on evidence-based policy. Today, I plan on focusing on, on a actual case study and it's a case study I know very well because I was involved in the, the development of, of some of the programs and products I'm going to talk about and, and when I say programs and products, I'm talking about communication tools and strategies. The particular case study, it focuses on the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing, which I was the executive director of for five years. What was our goal? Our goal was to increase uh, generation of applied policing research, engagement with applied policing research, and uptake in terms of policy, practice, programs, and so on among police practitioners. That is how I got started in the whole evidence-based policy kind of circle, if you will. This is what happens when you do this on a gloomy Friday morning without enough coffee. My, my brain is working more quickly than my mouth this morning, which is very unusual. Okay. So that's what that's the background of what we were trying to accomplish through CANSAB. And what we had to do is we had to come up with different creative ways to generate interest in research so that people would see that not only was research useful for them in terms of policies, practice programs and so on, but also that you know you could actually internally and within your own organization perhaps even work with researchers, conduct your own internal research, and so on. That's what we wanted to encourage. So today, that's what I want to focus on. The basic, uh, and let's be clear, this developed over time. This wasn't something we came out of the gate with and thought, oh wow, you know what, we have a complete and utter strategy for how we're going to do this. We did not. I always am an advocate for trial and error. That's, you know, I'm a, a social scientist. I like experimentation. So let's see where we're at at baseline. Let's experiment with something. And then let's go back and measure and see how well we did. And we tried all sorts of different things over the years. Some were, worked well, some were spectacular failures. When things failed, the expression we use is kill your darlings. So what that means is when something didn't work, we didn't keep doing it. We got rid of it. And that is what I, I would advise you as potential science communicators to consider. If you see that you're trying something, for example, something on social media, it's not working, kill it. Move on to trying something new that might actually generate the type of engagement that you're looking for. In a probably about, I think it was about year four of CANSEP, we came, well, no, actually, possibly year three, I developed this goal. And the goal was empowerment. Empower who? Empower practitioners to. Oh, I know. Chewy, 
COVID quarantine day 4,856. Anyway, this is my own fault for having small, super territorial dogs. Okay, so what we wanted to do, and I apologize for the interruption, but yeah, you know, I know you, you guys are probably laughing at what, at the, the sound, if you will, of me being bossed around by a six pound Morky Poo. Okay. Our goal was to empower practitioners to use research. That's what we wanted to do. At the end of the day, once we peeled off all sorts of different layers of the onion to get to a core of what we wanted to accomplish, this was it. Then we had to come up with this idea of how are we actually going to do this? How are we gonna say to researchers, you are capable, researchers, practitioners, you are capable of reading and using and and, uh, applying, and generating even your own research. So we focused on four key criteria. Empowerment is equal to education. We've got to produce products that, programs, practices that increase, I really should, I'm so under, I'm so under caffeinated. This is gonna be a long one. I'm Actually, it's not gonna be a long one. It's gonna be a short one, just so I get through this. Okay, we wanted to basically focus on education, but education in and of itself isn't enough. The, the content that you produce as a science communicator has to be accessible. And it has to, be, it has to meet people where they're at, not where you're at, but where they're at. As well, we wanted to focus on quality. We wanted to focus on quality forms of education, but also emphasize the importance of quality in research. So if you want to do your own research or rely on research from you know, different sources, make sure it's decent research. And then of course, inclusivity. We wanted to make sure, and this ties in with this issue of accessibility, we want to make sure that um, we emphasize inclusivity in a whole variety of different ways including inclusivity with respect to the practitioners, inclusivity with respect to the different types of research we might cite and so on. Keeping in mind that our goal ultimately is applied research. So there's always an exclusive element to whenever you take on any type of project, you're always uh, consciously thinking about who your audience is and who's in and who's out. But in my particular case, it's a pretty uh, diverse, but could, could be more diverse, a lot more diverse, uh, it's a fairly, it's a, there's some diversity within that audience. And also there was some diversity in two in terms of thinking about who is a practitioner. We, uh, my focus was on policing, but that ought to also include crime analysts. It should include the frontline police officers. It might include, uh, and it did include graduate students that were interested in, in this area of research. So inclusivity can, can cut in a whole bunch of different ways, but just to be conscious of that. So in terms of empowerment, what did we mean? We talked about 
we came up with this idea where we wanted to provide knowledge and tools to unleash human potential. And that sounds like a lot of, for some people that might be like, what does that mean? For other people, it's like, wait a second, I, I have a vision of what it is that you're trying to accomplish. And I think as science communicators, we should go in with ideally having done some self-reflection, thinking about what is it that we are trying to achieve through our science communication. Are we trying to affect, just affect policy? Are we trying to affect uh, public opinion change? Are we trying to affect, you know, group success or success of different types of individuals? Like, what is it that we want to accomplish and how do we plan on getting there? And I think having some sort of conceptualization of that in terms of a motto or a mantra, if you will, I, is not a bad idea. And I'm not going to lie, I deeply resisted this forever because I'm not a motto kind of person. But I discovered that it was very good for other people in terms of orienting um, their views around what it is that they'll get from this empowerment process and also what we will try to provide. So what did we do? Well, we decided that in terms of thinking about accessibility, we had to recognize that, again, we have to meet people where they're at. And people have different types of preferences with respect to how they consume information. So we focused on five different types, visual, written, listening, doing, and what we call the 20 seconders, which I'll explain in a second. So. This is the whole suite of different programs and um, strategies that we employed to try to increase research uptake and policing. So we call it diverse tools for diverse consumers. So under visual content, let me just see what I've got for the next slide here. Yeah. So I do actually have all these broken down. But again, as, um, if you're looking at the actual slide, and I'll take you through, uh, for those that are listening via podcast in a second, we broke, the, we broke our five areas down into very specific products that would meet the needs of people that like to consume information, for example, visually. So in terms of visual content, we created things like an infographic series. We, uh, I, I'm one of those people that... This is, you know, I cannot sit through a YouTube how-to video. Like, those makeup tutorials make me just, like, I, I don't even click on. I would not, certainly not be able to sit through one. Uh, I just can't with the step-by-step. -step. I've tried, not, not with makeup, but with other things. I want you to break it down for me, step one, two, three, four, conclusion. Like, that's what I need. That's one of the reasons why I like infographics. And so we created a series of videos that you could watch the video if you were one of those YouTube learners. You could actually watch how to do a particular type of uh, method. And basically what it was, was it was like a little cartoon series in which we animated ourselves and we talked, you know, it was, it was basically what we did was we created PowerPoint. Actually, do I have it? Look at that, I've got it. It really helps, by the way, if you're listening to this on podcast, if you access the slides that are up on my website at lhuey.net. This is a much more visually, or this is funny, I'm talking about diverse information methods, and this is a very fairly visual uh, particular discussion today. So for that, I'll apologize. 
But again, what we did is we created this method series video, recognizing that even though I want to only see things in steps one, two, three, four, five, other people actually want to know visually, they want to learn visually, and so we're going to break it down for them using some animations, some goofy, like, you know, little um, cartoon characters type stuff and so on. Let me just see what else we got here. Okay, so for those of you that are not able to see this on podcast, basically it's running through a couple slides of the animation of what we do. This particular uh, method series video is called on pre- how to run a pretest post test or what one is. And uh, it's got me as a little animated character talking about what is a pretest post test. And, and again, we want to keep it at very, you know, non-jargon, neutral, uh, clear, concise language. We don't want to, and as much as you can for talking about a form of experimental measure, uh, you know, we want to break it down so that it, it meets the second criteria, which is accessible and inclusive because we're not going to also leave anybody out. So that is our method series uh, videos for people that were interested in learning visually. Another set that we created is, again, this is for those YouTube lovers, was a hands-on how-to tutorial series. This is a set of 10 to 15 minute videos that walk people through the use of different research software. And we try to focus on software that you already have or you can access for free. Because there's no point in recommending things that people, A, can't use because, like, I can't code, I like, R, whatever that is, that software, but I can't with that, right? I'm not coding stuff. So I um, asked the people that did, that did this work, Brittany Blaskovitz, Lorna Ferguson, Jack Kosiarski, if they could find programs, that, like I said, free or... Brittany's right now that's up on the screen uses Excel. How to use Excel spreadsheets for doing um, a a particular type of analysis uh, using police data. And that was the other thing too. If you want to make it accessible to practitioners or policymakers in a particular field, um, don't use data. Like use data if you're and you're demonstrating to them a particular type of technique or a particular point. Use data that they can connect to, that they understand, and it helps them not just to visualize it, but to even think about how maybe their own organizations might also engage in doing some research as well. So let's just keep it moving. Dun, dun, dun. We also did a series of webcasts, and this is something that I'm currently using. Uh, I, on hashtag CrimCom for Crim Communication, Eileen Mom, my uh, my friend and colleague and co-founder of, of CrimCom, does these fantastic webcasts where she goes out and she gets all sorts of different types of, of uh, academic researchers to talk about their experiences of doing science communication. So in fact, even if you're not a criminologist and you're interested in science communication, you should, we have a, all Eileen's um, content is up on our YouTube channel, which is hashtag CrimCom. And what she does, like the last one was, and this might, again, might be super interesting for, especially for graduate students, 
was four early career researchers and talking about their experiences of getting started in their careers and being science communicators at the same time. So they talk about, you know, some of the strengths, some of the challenges, some of the mentoring they received and so on. So there's a diverse array of people that are being uh, interviewed for these webcasts. But and if you want to think about how you might generate some interest in the policy and research area of your interest, webcasts are actually so easy to do. Especially now that we know, thanks to COVID day for 5,869, that there is tons of software that is available to you. Some is free and some is fairly low cost. I use, I'm actually taping this particular uh, discussion using something called FreeCam. And so FreeCam does screenshots and uh, then I just plug my microphone into it and it just it just shoots anything that's on my screen if you want to get more fancy you can spend a little bit more money you can get software like filmora which i use to do editing for the webcast that we do i like to use that because it allows me to add um, music and it allows me to add titles and different slides and as well as doing editing and um, i also use filmora uni converter which allows me to take mp uh, for files, so video files or WMV Windows Media uh, video files and convert them into MP3, which is how this podcast is produced. This podcast, which is actually really a, a tape lecture, uh, I, uh, you know, hey, two for one. And that's something you might consider as well. If you're going to do webcasts or you're going to do discussions where you might want to put some content out visually, you can get more bang for your buck by plugging in your, you know, go on to Amazon for the low, low price of $29.95. You can get a fairly decent uh, microphone plug in and then now you have a webcast and a podcast easily available to you. Um, sort of getting to this point, the okay, conventional fantastic. wisdom uh, so I uh, of course somehow managed to pick a webcast where in which I didn't there's I can't get the audio up. But anyway, that's okay. Sort of getting to the We also created uh, a series of educational videos to educate uh, practitioners on some other, you know, Webcasts are interesting. Some people will like to use them. And even, you know, even if you are a visual consumer, your idea of what kind of visual content you want to consume is going to be different from somebody else's. Like you might not want to sit through a webcast. And in fact, a lot of people who, uh, when we did the webcast, a lot of people said, well, that's great, but I don't have time to sit down at my computer and watch a webcast. But when I'm driving in my car, I could listen to audio, which is how we got into the whole podcasting thing, even though I actually hate podcasts as much as I hate YouTube videos. Some people don't want to sit through a 15-minute tutorial on something but they, um, where we walk them step-by-step step through something. So we also created much shorter videos. Before, we tried to keep them at five minutes. Do you remember seeing of these I dare ads anywhere? I know I do. Their stands this, for drug abuse resistance education. The good news is this is available on Cantab's website. It's called the ABCs of EBP series. So Joining what we did was we tried to have a little bit of fun 
with uh, teaching people some core concepts to do with evidence-based policing in this case. And what we did was we asked uh, one of my undergraduate students, she's a former undergraduate student, Alexa Maud, is a fantastic YouTuber. And so we tapped into her natural YouTube skills. And what you don't hear, because I muted this accidentally, and now I can't unmute it. But anyway, she is hilarious. And she's... So she's teaching you concepts, but she's doing it in a fun and funny, informative way, keeping it at five minutes or under. We actually road tested this with police officers at a police service who liked it. And in fact, um, one of the things that we're actually doing is running a, a full test with one police agency. And we're looking to see which of these different types of forms of engagement and education they prefer. And I wouldn't be surprised if the ABCs of EBP series didn't come out much further ahead than some of the other tools that we've cr that we created. No, for dun, dun, dun. Um, this is something we were thinking about. I'd still like to do it. We'll see if it happens. We're talking about possibly even doing it for CrimCom. This is something, uh, my secret addiction, I don't like YouTube with one exception. I am addicted to reaction videos. For those of you that don't know what a reaction video is, which I cannot believe that y'all aren't addicted to this, these are videos that where you see people who are watching a music video and listening to the music for the first time and they're reacting. And my favorite videos happen to be the ones where people are reacting to Bohemian Rhapsody by the rock group Queen, which of course I, Yes, I'm old enough to remember when that actually came out. So for me, years later, uh, seeing people see watching this for the first time just tickles me. It just it's it's awesome. I love to see that look of complete and utter surprise of like what's going on, and then the head head banging starts. It's like a scene out of Wayne's World. We all seem to like we all seem to be banging our heads to Bohemian Rhapsody. Where am I going with this? Um, Reaction videos are huge. Not just those types of reaction videos, but other types of reaction videos. Why are we not developing content? Again, it means people where they're at. Now, maybe perhaps 50, 60, 80 year olds might not be watching, well, some of us might be, but uh, I'm not 80, just in case you were wondering. Um, might not be into the reaction videos, but certainly younger people who grew up in the YouTube generation, this is this is a key staple. So why not create reaction videos where you have criminologists or healthcare uh, researchers or education researchers or wh whatever, you know, inequality researchers reacting to news items or, or to new research coming out and giving a reaction to it. I think that's a brilliant idea. We didn't do it with Gansa because I basically, we just, you know, we had so many things on the go, but I really 100% want to see this happen with CrimCom because I think it's a really great idea. Uh, seminars and talks. Lots of seminars and talks being held by academics. One of the things is if you are, if you are doing a talk, why not video it or have somebody video? All nowadays, all you need is your iPhone 11 or your Samsung, and you can 
get pretty decent quality and post it. So why, why not do that and then share that content? So seminars, classes, and talks. And again, that's one of the things that I do when I tape these discussions. It's for students at the University of Western Ontario, but why not share it more broadly so that other potential science communicators can learn from that? Then we did, and then of course, there's some people that prefer written content. Some people just like to read more than they want to watch. And so we also create different types of educational tools that would tap into that. So for example, I write blogs, I'm a big blogger. And I love blogs because you can, they're informal, you can make them as fun or as interesting or as provocative or, or however you want to, to pitch your work. There's no constraints other than keep it simple and, and have some type of interest for the person that's going to consume it. So I used to run, I don't do it weekly anymore, but I used to run a weekly blog on uh, research on Canadian policing issues. I now uh, contribute to a blog on CrimCom and I still try to keep up my EBP blog, but I haven't had as much, you know, I've taken a little bit of a break. And okay, so uh, the by the way, my blog was called Dear Laura and, and the reason for that was because I used to get email all the time that would be like, from people I didn't know, they'd be like, Dear Laura, what does the research say on this? Which was the whole genesis of this blog. So I, you know, try to use the blog as an opportunity, not just to provoke, not just to, you know, but to educate people on something that they, on some aspect of the research that they might not have known about. One of the things that I'm very passionate about is recognizing that a lot of ideas that are current today go back. Like we didn't just discover social inequality. We've been talking about for example, social inequality is certainly in relation to crime since the 1920s. The 1930s through the 50s was a huge heyday of discussion about this. So this idea that you know you have to have upstream solutions for downstream problems to do with health, mental health, housing, and so on. We've been talking about this since the 19, you know, 1910. I remember, you know, there was a big seminal uh, book, influential book is what I should say on on you know uh the slum and and housing crises okay i gotta you gotta give me a two second little break here chewy is just emerged from his little he was hiding under a bed he's just emerged and he's gonna start barking if i don't let him out so two seconds here come on chewbacca you gonna be a good boy gonna be a good boy Okay, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, let's see. Speaking of which, next one up, square one assessment. So one of the things that we did, and I wish more academics would consider doing this, um, square one was a one-page assessment of the evidence base for different popular policing programs in Canada. So for example, verbal judo or uh, home security inspections, or bicycle registries, bait vehicles, in which what we did was we, we had somebody do an assessment and then we sent it out for an independent review by someone who was an expert in that field. And what we did was we published these with the idea that if you want to make research accessible, it's 
300 page policy brief is probably not going to be your best friend. What we did was we broke it down. So the example I've got up here on my screen is block parent. We asked five basic questions to which the, you had to give a yes or no answer. And then we put down a very brief to the point explanation for why we answered it this way. Is the program based on research? No. There is no evidence to suggest that block parent programs are based on research. Has the pro program been independently evaluated? No. There is no evidence that the block parent program has been independently evaluated. When you're working with practitioner groups, what the key um, interest, and I would argue with policymakers as well, but especially with practitioners, what they want to know is what do I need to know and how can I use this? They don't want a big extended, a complicated uh, set of responses about whether or not uh, it, this was a randomized control trial, multi-site, blah, 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 blah. They don't. So one of the things about doing a, uh, evidence assessments this way is it increases the likelihood that people will actually access what you're doing and, and, and use it. And I've had people say to me, Oh, you know, I read this assessment, it was super helpful, and I was able to use it when I was making a pitch to my chief or to this policymaker, and so on. So this, keeping it simple, works. We also did a monthly newsletter. This is not, of course, going to be super appropriate, probably for academics that are just talking about their own work or the research in the field. You're probably not going to go to all the hassle of doing a newsletter, but we did. We also created um, a site for criminology classics so that people, because again, I'm very passionate about, about people recognizing that, that my field has a long history, as does probably everybody else's field. Um, and so knowing where ideas come from. Now let's move on to listening content. As I said before, we took our webcasts, we take we would take any type of tape discussion where we had a, a video and turn it into audio files as well. And those audio files are all up on SoundCloud or in this particular case, they're all up, um, on, they're available through anchor.fm, which if you are thinking about, again, podcasting or taking webcasts into sound, I love anchor.fm. Uh, Jack Kosiarski got me onto this. It is a site where it's very easy to, it's free, it's very easy to create an account, post your MP3 files, and what it does is it distributes your audio to different sites like, uh, like Apple and Google and, and different other places where the sound cloud, where that host audio content, so that your web, Cast slash podcast get a much bigger uptake than they would if you just posted on one site. So that is a very good tip. Thank you, Jack. Then there are a group that are hands-on learners. These are people that learn through experience. And in some cases, if people, well, you might say, well, none of this really applies to me as an academic. I'm not going to do any of these things. But pay attention, you could bring in experience as a way of, of helping to generate interest in your research. And I'll tell you how in a second. 
so we ran we run two programs one's called virtual scholars and one is called the elite scholars Canada program so with the virtual scholars what we did was people signed up to work with a researcher remotely like virtually and on a topic of interest to both of them and what we had was Lorna Ferguson here at Western actually worked with two police officers, Sin Kim at Toronto and Wendy Picknell at the RCMP, on missing persons. And what they did was they co-created research uh, in a variety of different ways. They co-created research that they're actually presenting at a virtual conference that later on this month. And that will in turn generate some research papers and other content that, you know, provides an opportunity for practitioners to actually learn, but more importantly, to model the behavior that we wanted to see more broadly across policing, which is to have practitioners get involved in research. Modeling is a very powerful persuasive tool. If you're a researcher who is working with practitioner groups or policymakers, one of the smartest things that you can do is to try to come up with ways to co-present or co right or co-talk or co-anything with people who have experience that can support the research and talk about how the research relates to their experience and vice versa. And so you don't have to go out and run a virtual scholar program to incorporate experience and to show, as I say, practitioners and policymakers the importance of the co-mingling, if you will, of academia and experience. I always argue that the two together are, are probably the most powerful way to communicate. Uh, I'll skip over that. These are another program we run. And then these are what, and then the last section is on the 20 seconders. These are for people like me that have zero patience and I'm terrible. I mean, I don't know how I became an academic because I can't spend like hours reading a book anymore. I, I need everything in like snappy, snappy, snappy. So for people like me that, that are not going to be spending, uh, you know, reading your 300 page policy brief, I wanna know your content in, as I've said before, 260 characters or 280 or whatever it is or less. So I actually learn a lot of what's going on in my community and in the world through social media, in particular on Twitter. And I also use Twitter, I've talked about this before, as a space in which to promote research and to promote research ideals. And then of course, for those of you that are into, the in, you're part of the Instagram uh, generation, if you will. I, I personally am not very comfortable with selfies. I'm not going to lie. I'm not a fantastic picture taker and it always feels awkward and weird. Uh, but I do try to use Instagram. We run it on, we used to run it on CANSEB. We run it on CRIMCOM, uh, Police Practice and Research, uh, which is the journal I'm going to take over as the editor for. We try to do that. Why? Because it's a great opportunity to not only educate people, but also to create a network or a community. I actually prefer community. A community of academics, practitioners, policymakers, and so on that are absorbing your content and feel a part of something. I think one of the things that we don't do enough in academia is talk about the ways in which researchers, when we're doing science communication, 
I've, I've said before, we often, we, we're often like aliens. People don't really relate to us. They might be a little bit intimidated or, you know, like, what's this person going to say? Are they going to talk over my head? Are they going to make me feel stupid? You know, am I going to spend an hour of my life wasted listening to my wah, wah, wah? So I think it's really important both Twitter and Instagram allow a space in which we can um, create a community for ourselves that includes people that might not otherwise see us outside of a professional context. So then they get to see, and I've got pictures up here um, from when I was running the CanSeb account as the uh, ED. I've got pictures of my dog. I've got books I'm reading. I've got a picture of my, my friend Andy Whitford, who was the head of crime analysis for London Police, and we co-wrote we co a piece together. We did research together. This is his, I've got a picture of me at his retirement party at different events. Here's me with Cynthia Lum, who, you know, is a big name in evidence-based policing and, and a real, real absolute sweetheart. Here's us at a conference together next to pictures of me at cool, interesting places I went to conferences. So just vary it up a little bit. When you do do social media, don't be, don't try to avoid acting like a stereotype of an academic where you post very, very serious things, full of jargon. And also a lot of academics, I'm gonna be straight with you, come across as being angry all the time. Now, if you're speaking to other people who come across as being angry all the time, that's great. You guys, all three of you can be together. But people actually like to see a variety of different aspects of people's personality. They want to know who is this person. And so if you're constantly posting about your anger over a policy, over this or that, first of all, it loses its emotional resonance for a lot of people that are in your potential audience because you're angry all the time. So when you're really, really angry, it's hard for me to tell. This is the same thing. You also um, don't want to be so frivolous all the time. Like I joke a lot and I also put personal stuff up a lot, but I don't want, it's not a joke account. It's not my family account. It's not just for me and my mom to talk about my dog. I also post some serious content as well. So keeping in mind a mix of content and, you know, again, diversity. I have I like memes and graphics. I've talked about this before. I love infographics. I also love memes. Memes are a great communication tool. Use something that's already out in the social stratosphere and give it a new meaning. And people will often stop and be like, wow, that's that's really cool. You know, one of my favorite memes, and this is way overdone now, is the meme of the real housewife crying and the cat, the, the evil looking white cat sitting there like I could care less. You know, there's tons and tons of memes like that that you can change the meaning to be something about research or something about a public policy position that, again, visually stops people on their tracks, communicates a ton of information in 20 seconds or less, which is the key here. Here's an, oh, yeah, more examples of memes. Okay, so... I asked one of my undergraduate classes last year about TikTok. Now my undergraduate classes are, are typically full of, of individuals who are probably about 22 to 24, five. And when I said TikTok, their eyes rolled and they were like, no, no, that's for younger kids. And I get that, but I wasn't dissuaded. 
And so what we did um, was with CanSub is I asked Alexa to learn about TikTok, her and Lorna Ferguson. And Lorna, by the way, was the mastermind behind a lot of the programs and, and products that we created. So kudos, you know, I gotta give her a shout out. But they learned TikTok and they developed some ideas about what works with TikTok and what doesn't. And as a result, today we use, I use TikTok as a teacher to do 60 second videos on called Ask a Cop so that my students want to know uh, want to know something about policing and I put the questions out and police officers tape themselves. I edit that and post it on TikTok and it gets a lot of views. I also use it in CrimCom to communicate different ideas about science communication and so on. Probably are due for some more TikToks. I should probably get on that. But I really like TikTok, no. even though it isn't, yeah. you know, it's, there's not just 14 year olds. There's a whole hashtag yeah. called hashtag, um, like hashtag yeah. health student, hashtag crim no. student, hashtag, you know, there's a yeah. lot of different communities out there. And yeah, you're not going to get public policymakers at Health Canada perhaps using TikTok. But, their kids might be using TikTok. And that, you know, hey, you gotta take your opportunities where you can get them. Also, it makes sense. So my retainer's been giving me a really weird list every time I put videos, it in. So because you're trying to say the word 60 trash. seconds, you can also post and use them on Instagram and on Twitter. Okay. Nope. Oh, here's my famous infographics that I like. I want to know, I want to see a graphical representation. What do I need to do? How does this thing work? And so I love the infographics that were created for CANSEB. Um, they are, you know, basically take you from the first step all the way to the top step. They use different, you know, shades and to draw your eye here, there, and everywhere. It was a conscious strategy about thinking about how to communicate as quickly as possible what people, you know, how something works. And then once they get the how, okay, we start with the pretest, and then we go to the uh, implement and intervention, post-test and compare, then I can go and read the little boxes. But now I have a sort of general understanding in 20 seconds about how to do a pretest, post-test. I also tried something, your mileage may vary on this, I try, I've talked about using GIFs on social media before or creating your own little um, JPEGs of different uh, factoids, if you will. I created something called hashtag CrimFacts, which was intended to be used on Facebook. And it was a quick, easy summary uh, for the general public on the research of something. So burglaries and break and enters. I talk about repeat victimization. It says numerous studies show that once an address has been victimized, it can be further re-victimized multiple times. This is because it is easier for offenders to repeat a crime where they have already been successful than to identify a new target. Very simple graphics, very bold coloring, use of, of uh, bold font to highlight key points, very clear, straightforward language. In theory, hashtag CrimFox was a brilliant idea. The problem was the execution. The media that I used was Facebook because Facebook is a perfect place for a general audience. But the problem was a couple things. One, to get a jet, you had to actually pay, and it cost me about 15 bucks a, 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 
a schwack to get a provincial or national audience of people that Facebook Facebook's algorithms figured out this is your target audience people that are interested saying in crime or policing the problem was was that yeah when I paid I got great engagement when I didn't pay I got no engagement the other problem was was that sometimes I got engagement from people that had some interesting conspiracy theories like my favorite was when I posted one of these B&E factoids somebody thought somebody warned somebody else don't don't put, put you know don't put something out here about that you've been burglarized because you know maybe this account is going to try to bur is set up to burglarize you I don't know because you know I'm going to fly to Ohio or wherever to go and commit a B&E but anyway yeah, so I, I, for that reason, got off Facebook. And, and But you know what? Some people have greater success. The other reason why I wasn't a huge fan of Facebook, you can't have a separate account for your organization. It had to be a page that was attached to your personal account. I didn't like that. I did not like that. So again, if you're out there as a researcher yourself and you don't mind having your own research page on Facebook, you know, that's great, but be prepared to do a ton of hustling on Facebook to get any kind of traction unless you want to pay for retweets. And on that note, that, yay, I can't believe I got through this without another Chewbacca barking debacle. On that note, it is definitely coffee time. I will catch you on the flip.